What's going on, everyone? It is episode 213 of Top Rope Nation. We're going to be getting historical on you today. We're talking, you know, patriotism is in the air. It's a holiday weekend here in the United States. Happy early Independence Day to all of you out there. We're talking Great American Bash. It makes sense. It fits the theme. We've got a great guest on the line. We're going to be talking about some of his work as a historian of professional wrestling and then getting him involved in this discussion of the greatest Great American Bash matches of all time. Uh, we're sticking to the early Great American Bash, the original, by the way. We're not talking about the WWE or the NXT reincarnations, but yeah. the uh, I got I got to go the there. That's all I was here for. <laughs> Damn it. Justin's like, that's all I prepped for, man. <laughs> 2000s. Justin had a winning rant where he was going to convince us all that changing the name to The Bash was the best thing that ever happened <laughs> in the history of the show. The great, the great American part is what killed those shows in 04 and 05. <laughs> Enjoy your afternoon, Justin. We'll see you next week now. <laughs> but uh, no, I got Kyle Ross on the line. Justin Joint, as always, here to break it all down. And the very special guest, if you're a big-time fan of professional wrestling, if you have been on the internet for any period of time, you are probably familiar with his work. His name is Graham Cawthon. He is the founder of the history of WWE.com. Uh, we've referenced this website many, many times here on Top Rope Nation. It's a great resource uh, if you're looking for any, you know, untold tidbits about house shows, if you're looking for television results, pay-per-view results. I remember the first time I went to that site trying to find the first wrestling event I ever went to, a house show in the middle of Iowa in the 1980s with only a few thousand people there. There it was. Found the results. I'd always wondered about it. Graham had the results. Uh, and also, I should say, Graham, we have been friends for a long, long time, uh, somewhere around 20 years. I was I was trying last night to think, where did I meet Graham Cawthon? And it was either through WrestleView.com. Uh, we were both involved like in the early days, around 2001-ish of WrestleView.com with Adam Martin and Paul Nemmer. But I think we might have actually met before that. Were you maybe on the, the Bret Hart forums back on BretHart.com? I know that's where I met Paul Nemmer. The founder of russellview.com but i have no memory of that but that sounds exactly like somewhere i would be in that time frame <laughs> like i said it's been two decades we have been friends for yeah. a long long time it's about time we do a podcast together this is the first time you've ever actually wanted to talk to me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> finally i like, guess it's time to break the ice here yeah no we bonded of course over pro wrestling and then our love for bruce springsteen over the years talking about that's right going to some concerts of the boss. Uh, yeah. So it's great to have you on top rope nation, man. Welcome to the show. I am so happy to be here. It's a perfect Saturday afternoon. I'm sorry. No, we're, we're listening to this in the future. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's a perfect day to talk old school wrestling, which is one of my favorite hobbies. Yeah. Graham, he's, he's got the theme down, man. He is in his wrestling room. You see the vintage posters behind him. If you're watching on youtube.com, if you're listening on the podcasting feeds, check out the YouTube video so you can see that beauty. That wall is amazing. Love to see that here. Um, now, Graham, one of the things we like to do when we have people on the show for the first time is kind of just ask them 
you know, what's your what's your background story as far as how did you become a pro wrestling fan? What are your earliest memories of watching this crazy sport? Uh, my earliest memories probably would be of the 80s era. Um, I would have family, extended family, or I would have neighbors who are watching it. And honestly, during that time frame, you had the Hogan's and the Macho Man's and the Ultimate Warriors and the Andres the Giants. And it was very, it actually put me off because it seemed like, oh, that's the show where everyone screams. Like that was my, that was my, <laughs> how I took it. Um, and then uh, fast forward a couple years, I'm in fifth grade and I notice, I don't know if maybe a cartoon I was watching on Saturday morning didn't air anymore. So I was flipping through the channels and I came across superstars and I, I thought to myself, I'm probably not supposed to be watching this. So let's watch this. <laughs> and I gave it a shot and it was fascinating. I honestly think the first episode of wrestling that I ever remember watching from beginning to end is the superstars where Papa Shango put the curse on the ultimate warrior and warrior <laughs> Park backstage. And wow. I was thinking to myself, this is so weird. There's so much to talk about. There is so much to follow. There are so many personalities here. Um, and then just fast forward a few months, uh, which finger do I want to use? This finger. SummerSlam 92 uh, was the first show that I was a fan for the build of. And I'm just, there's no going back at this point. Yeah. I mean, absolutely iconic. Now, I know you moved around a lot. Of course, 20 years of history. I know a little bit about you. Um, and so I believe, wasn't your father in the military? He was, he was. Yeah. We lived, we lived in West Germany during a bunch of the eighties back when West Germany was still a thing. Uh, and I would watch the armed forces network and we would, uh, once we moved back to the States, fast forward a few years later, I'm a wrestling fan and I'm going through these old VHS tapes of what we recorded from television back on the armed forces network. I found that they aired superstars and Saturday night's main event overseas back in the mid 80s and nice. it just kind of added fuel to the fire of this this thing is this industry is so weird and fascinating and i need to learn more about it and how did how did they get to air that stuff overseas back in the mid 80s when there, apparently there was a there was a uh, war happening in the u.s between all the wrestling companies and the wf is going global already mm-hmm now, were you so you were mostly a WWF fan growing up? Is that correct? Yes, because no matter where I lived, I could always get it. Right. Okay. So, like me, then probably, I, I, Justin talks about it. We we all kind of grew up WWF first. I, Kyle had a little bit more background knowledge as a younger kid of what was going on in WCW and Crockett before that. Um, but when when we get into talking about the Great American Bash, these were events for me that I watched years later for the most part. I, like the mid-90s ones I saw live on pay-per-view. But the, the old stuff I had to go back and rewatch and rewatch again, getting ready for this podcast. So that I'm guessing that was pretty much the same for you as well. For me, it was um, probably 92, 93 once wrestling grabs me. I'm going to Blockbuster every weekend. Yeah. And I'm just renting whatever it is that has wrestling on it. Mm -hmm. So that would be my introduction. And actually, I know we'll talk about it later, but. My God, look at that. Wow. 
the original VHS. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, that, around that period, that's how I spent my weekends too. Blockbuster, they always had a great selection, mostly WWF in my area, but one, once in a while I could get the old, the old Crockett and WCW stuff as well. So yeah, Kyle and Justin, if you have any questions as we go, feel free to jump into, I've got some stuff prepared too, but I, I wanted to ask you, what was kind of the genesis for starting history of WWE? Because there's some other sites out there now that are kind of similar in nature to what you've done, but yours was, as far as I know, the first. I had never seen anything like that before where you just charted out the entire like years of WWF results, and then you moved into other companies as well. All the house show results. What what made you want to start that website and become, honestly, one of the preeminent wrestling historians out there, in my view? Well, that was never the goal. Um, really, it was a lot of downtime but also a lot of curiosity um i grew up a fan during the mid 90s so that would be the pro wrestling illustrated heyday where every month they would have their in, in in the arena results section shows from all over the world and there's no way that you could know that all these shows were happening all over the world unless you were subscribing to that or the observer or something to that degree so when i would read through the magazines it just blew my mind that these shows were happening almost every day of the week. And there was no way for you to experience that unless you were there. These weren't TV tapings, straight up house shows. And so I would love to, you know, look at the pages, look at the arena results. And all it would basically say is wrestler A beat wrestler B or wrestler A beat wrestler B. And in my in my mind, I'm going, yeah, but how? You, yeah, I need more. I need more. Like, was this a 30 second match? Was, was this an hour long match? So I always wanted to be able to convey the story of the match in as much brevity as possible. So around 2001, maybe early 2002, uh, I was working full time. I took a year off college. And so I just kind of like as, as my own little pet project, um, you know, what was happening the year that I became a fan. Uh, the, the iconic shows that you think of when, when you become a fan during, as, as you're a child, what was happening the day before? What was happening the day after? So I kind of wanted to build that bridge. And then just over time, uh, that year of results became two years of results, became 10 years of results, became 15 years of results. Because you, you've, told this much story but now kind of like if you think of it as a movie yeah but now i want to know the prequel i want to know what came before so like the headliner in january of this year what was he doing in december of the year before or in july of the year before you know when did he come into the territory so it just grew onto itself and then as it's growing people over the world are just organically finding it and as they find it, they contribute. And so it just becomes, it feeds on itself. And that's how it's done for, geez, I guess, 20 years now. Wow. You know, obviously it's grown into something so big right now. How many new pieces of info do you get per day, per week, per month now in 2021? So full disclosure, about a year, a year or two back, I just decided this is too much. Yeah. So I've taken a step back. Uh, Richard Land has, has mm-hmm. really been the driving force over the past couple of years. But I will say, you know, when I was full time into it, 
you know, maybe a half dozen emails a day, something to that degree. Um, but really what, what got me, what fueled my fire more than anything was tracking down old footage. And this is pre WWE network. This is stuff that you'd never find on YouTube. It's finding the old footage from, you know, Crockett in 1984 that very few people had seen, or certainly no one today really talks about and being able to add that stuff in great detail. Nice. I was going to ask you about the growth of the website because I remember, like I said, you were doing some stuff with WrestleView and I remember you writing some articles on there. Were you doing kind of like this day in history and kind of tying that into the website, something along those lines? Had you had you done much uh, writing in in the wrestling industry at all prior to launching the website? Very little. Um, I think in high school I had written for a wrestling site and then WrestleView. Um, full disclosure, I was going to college at that point to be a journalist, which I am to, today. So, yes, there is writing all along the way. Mm-hmm. But prior to launching the website, very little in the industry. Okay. Were there any events at all, you know, as you started going through the years? And like you said, what happened before this? What happened before that? Were there any events that were kind of like, I don't know, unicorns for you, where it was like very, very difficult to find out what happened, like that you were chasing down the results, anything that stands out where you just couldn't get an accurate story of of what happened at some live event? Off of the top of my head, I can't think of scenarios like that. Mm -hmm. What I can think of are scenarios in which I find something and I I basically go, holy crap, how does not everyone know this? This is huge. (laughs) There's something something like, um, and of course, I think everyone knows this at this point. Uh, but, you know, 15 years ago, I discovered that it, while he was NWA world champion, Sting defended the title against a, a guy that no one no one really heard of after the fact, but a guy by, by the name of Mean Mark. And then I, I sit there and I go, Sting fought The Undertaker for the NWA world title. <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is the dream match that everyone's talking yeah. about. You know, but no one really knows that that is something that actually happened. And it headlined, I think, Greensboro and, and another. But but it wasn't really supposed to happen. It was, I think there was an injury and, and they just threw in uh, Mean Mark to, to fill a spot. But that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe someone no shows and this this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere gets something that means nothing at the time but 15 20 30 years ago everyone looks back and goes that's a dream match that we didn't even know happened that kind of stuff what's the most absurd bit of info that you've come across that like just made you chuckle um i always love coming across the shows where you know, there's like a snowstorm. And so pretty much every scheduled match can't happen because half the half the guys are stuck at an airport on the other side of the country. And so the opening match with, you know, I'm just throwing out names here, but the opening match with the Brooklyn Brawler and whoever goes 30 minutes just because they're trying to kill time. <laughs> and then the main event, which was supposed to be, you know, let's say hypothetically Hulk Hogan and Earthquake, turns into some battle royal with just like the 12 guys that they could find. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember because I did a, a series and 
covering 1990, speaking of Hogan Earthquake recently, and I use your site a lot. I was just combing it for, like, just give me some wacky stuff that happened during the dark matches or these house shows. And without a shadow of a doubt, the best thing I learned that happened in 1990 WWF, there was a random house show in Salt Lake City, Utah. Savage and the Warrior worked. And there was some local DJ who was doing the ring announcer. So they did the DQ finish where Warrior got DQ and they do the thing where, uh, you know, the announcer's supposed to say, Savage wins, but he's not the champion. Well, this local DJ screwed up and said Savage was the new champion. And Warrior roughed him up and apparently gave him a clothesline and gave the guy a bloody lip. And I'm like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Did he go into business for himself? Was that supposed to happen? I just love the fact that, like, yeah, the Warriors clotheslining random DJs and giving them bloody lips for screwing up the announcement. You know, if I'm Warrior in that spot, I might do the same thing just to get my heat back. Yeah. <laughs> it was a uh, count out. My apologies. I, I had it open there. But yeah. yeah, I remember finding out things through your site, like, you know, I hadn't, everyone knows this now, but, you know, I didn't know Bret Hart had an Iron Man match with Ric Flair or Bret Hart had an Iron Man match with his brother, Owen. That stuff just blew me away when I first oh, thought about it. So, so just to add to that, um, I made the site around the same time that I discovered fan cams. Uh, I was a big fan cam guy back in the day. And those two matches you you just spoke of were absolutely among my earliest fan cams. And I just love tracking down fan cams that no one knew about, adding them to the site. Because uh, you can't get more detailed than actually watching the show yourself. In terms of verifying that it happened, everything that goes up there is something that you had to see with your own eyes? Oh, no, no, no. It can't be. It can't okay, be. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it would, I mean... In the sense of results that I got from magazines or, you know, to that degree, yes, I did see that they had that thing. Uh, but I get, you know, contributions from everyone. And so they're telling me based off of their own recollections, some of that's going to be wrong. Uh, but I think in the grand scheme of things, that's how it's kind of like it, it's its own Wikipedia. Not everyone can make the edits. You know, you have to I would think of myself as the editor in that in that instance. Um but everyone can contribute. Nice. They're all honest people in Salt Lake City. I know it. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I I think, too, just the, the travel schedules, too. You know, you always hear the, the old time wrestlers talking about these insane travel schedules um, that they had at the time. And when you go through, you know, the yearly pages on your site and you kind of follow the guys around, literally, as you scroll down the page and you see the, the way that they move town to town. It's pretty insane. I I mentioned I looked one of the the big unicorns for me was what was the card for this WWF show I went to as a very very small child. Uh, I have no memory of it all. I just know I went to the show, but it was here in my hometown, and it was in July of '86. And I found it on your site, and then I wonder, oh gee, what what was what was before that? And I ended up finding out that the day before uh, there was a big WWF taping, All Star Wrestling um up in ontario so these guys worked one day in brantford ontario a television taping and the next day they were in waterloo iowa and i'm thinking how did they possibly pull that off because the waterloo iowa airport is not big how the heck in one day did these guys do a television taping in ontario and get to waterloo iowa it just blows me away well and there's a lot of that i think it blew them away too that's no how kidding. they pulled it off <laughs> 
but I ended up like, I never would have went back and looked for this because I've always looked for like photos of the show that I was at as a kid and haven't ever found a single photo of the show. But I did find some of that television that was taped the day before up in, in Ontario. So that was kind of cool to you know, track that down and have that connection. But Yeah, especially that 85 to 90 stretch. Yeah, cocaine's a hell of a drug. But <laughs> it, it got a lot of people through those years. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't matter what the time zone is. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. It's Pablo uh, Escobar time. <laughs> um. Graham, I mentioned too, you know, as I introduced you here for the YouTube version, so people can see that the poster collection behind you, that's just a fraction of what you have. Um, you've been a vendor at wrestling conventions over the years. Uh, you have an absolutely insane collection of vintage wrestling posters. Sometimes you're posting them over on the Twitter feed at the history of WWE. Do you have a favorite in your collection? Do you have anything out there that you're looking for as far as vintage wrestling posters right now? So if I look around the room and like you can see one wall, but obviously a room has four walls. So they're they're all on different walls. I love I've got a WrestleMania five uh, Hogan Savage, super colorful. I mean, it's the one that looks like a painting. And I've had that one signed by I'm going to ballpark here, maybe 15, 20 people that work the show. Um, so really when I look around the room, it's, it's WF 87 to 93. Um, and then I've got over in, in another area, I've got some WCW, uh, early nineties stuff at this point, the, the things that I would be looking for might be honestly, the things that we're going to talk about today. Um, some of that Crockett mid eighties Crockett or some of those early WCW pay-per-views. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen them, but maybe during this first couple of years, they're much more of a, a vertical. So they're not more of a square. They're, you know, like a very narrow up top, long. Um, so there's like a Havoc 89 like that. There's a Bash 89 like that. Um, trying to think from 90. But yeah, that kind of stuff. But honestly, at this point, I don't have the ball space. <laughs> so I need to st take a step back. I see the Survivor Series 92 poster. Yeah. Peeking oh. out there in the corner. Sean, yeah. that. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, Graham. The ultimate where did not work that show. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that edit has been taken care of. He didn't make it, but it's cool. Like I was at that show, but I, it's just cool oh, that wow. um, you have the original um, poster on yeah, the Warrior in there. Yep, yep. And and that was. It's so cool that you were at that show. I know it's not regarded as is an all time classic or anything like that, but the year that you become a fan, you just remember everything in such detail, and that's that's absolutely one of those shows for me. Not, not to make you turn your camera again. Are Brett and Sean even on that poster? No. Okay, no. yeah, because that wasn't a featured match originally before they made it a World No, and, and of course, back then, those posters were put together so far in advance, yeah. you know, back in probably late September or so, and, and Brett really wasn't a featured guy. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we talk about sometimes on the show is our wives, and we're all married men on the show, and Justin has told this funny story in the past where when he and his wife started dating, he brought her in, and he he sat her down, and he was like, Caitlin, I got something to tell you. <laughs> She's like, what is this going to be? And he's like, I'm a big pro wrestling fan. So <laughs> we all have stories like that. So Graham, like, how does your wife put up with, with the collection? I mean, it's super cool. She has given you the wall space to have this wrestling room. Obviously, you can see in, in my house, I've got something similar, not nearly as cool as yours, but a, a little wall of, of wrestling memorabilia. And what, what, how receptive has your wife been to uh, 
doing the website, the collecting and all of that? The, she just kind of gives me my space and I give her her space to do her things. Uh, but no, there's, there's no, this is not her thing. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't, couldn't make her a fan, huh? We, she took me, uh, as we were dating, she took me to a house show in the Savannah area. And, uh, she, I do remember us being in the crowd and she looks around she sees all the kids having fun. And, and this would have been 2016 and new day was there and they were huge. And she, I remember her turning into me and telling me, okay, I kind of get it now. I get, you know, the live experience where, you know, I get why these, I get the excitement. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you that. Um, but you can have your room away from everything else. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right, guys. So before we go any further, I do want to get the usual housekeeping items out of the way. Of course, if you are listening on any of the podcasting platforms, be it Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, we're available everywhere podcasts are found, including Amazon. Now you can get us to play on your Alexa device at home. Uh, wherever you are listening, please hit subscribe, leave us a rating and review. It helps the show out so much. I mentioned we're streaming on YouTube. Uh, and so please subscribe to the channel. Leave a like on this video if you enjoy what we're doing. Every single show we put out, we are also putting out video versions now. It's youtube.com slash Nation. And of course, if you want the best way to support the show, get bonus content each and every week. Check out the Patreon page. The link is in the podcast and video description here. We just dropped our monthly Top Rope Nation Classics show a couple of days ago. We looked back at ECW One Night Stand 2006, almost two hours, a real historical deep dive on that show. A lot of fun. Check it out. Patreon.com slash Top Rope Nation. All right, guys, let's go back in time. Let's talk about the Great American Bash. Uh, Graham, you're the historian here on the show. That's what you're known for. I'm going to throw it to you. What's the genesis for the Great American Bash back in the mid-'80s? It all surrounds Dusty Rhodes. So in, you know, whether it be late 84, early 85, Dusty becomes full-time booker at Jim Crocker Promotions. And he is competing now with the WWF, who is building up to their first WrestleMania. And what he does essentially here, so they have Starcade. Starcade is a one-day event. It's Thanksgiving. Dusty is slowly not only bringing in talent and building talent to be his guys, his top heel, his top babyface, his top tag team, etc. He's also laying the framework for what we see in 86, which is essentially a major event every quarter. So what we have here is an outdoor festival type atmosphere, almost a concert type atmosphere and a little historical context here. This, the first great American bash in Charlotte takes place one week before live aid, which is when we think of big eighties concert experiences, it's not just wrestling. And that's what we think of when we think of WrestleMania, especially the first WrestleMania. It's not just wrestling. There's a lot more to drive conversation in, in the pop culture world. 
So Dusty doesn't necessarily do that. He's not bringing Liberace. He's not bringing Muhammad Ali, those kind of names. But he is in in the heart of the, of the Carolina territory. He is using a minor league baseball stadium. He's bringing in a top country act. He is building toward a blow off for three major feuds in the territory. And if you look at the television from that time frame, you can see going back about three months how they start laying the seeds for the Great American Bash being the blow off here. It is a fireworks show. It's a concert. It's wrestling. It's, you know, bring the kids. We'll have food. Like, it's, it's, a, it's much more than just, you know, go to the, the Greensboro Coliseum or the Charlotte Coliseum and see Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes, blah, blah, blah. So it very much has that patriotic, family-friendly, live event experience marketing around it to make it more than just a wrestling show. Yeah. July 6th, 85 was the first event, um, as Graham said, in Charlotte. It's headlined by Tully Blanchard uh, defending the TV title against Dusty Rhodes in a steel cage match. Yeah, entertainment. You get that one-hour David Allen Coe concert <laughs> <laughs> on the show. I, I noticed you prefaced that with the word entertainment. <laughs> Think about who your audience is. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, it, it yeah. makes sense for that. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I'm not going to, yeah. I'm sure they loved it. Yeah. Um, now, I have not seen the 85 version. So this was on closed circuit, wasn't it? That I'm not too sure about, okay. uh, but it was it was among those early, early, early VHS tapes mm -hmm. that every store had. Yeah. So like 85 through 87 are not on the network, um, but there were, as you mentioned, the VHS releases. You have to track them down. Like the first the first War Games match um, from 87, I had to track that down online to watch it i don't it's been released on a wwe dvd set but i don't have that one and it's not on the network right now peacock right now i think it might have been on the previous version of the network as like a hidden gem um, but i couldn't find it on peacock now to rewatch it so some of those those early matches from the first three years of the event are kind of elusive for fans to see at least right at this moment uh, and you also have the fact that 86 and 87 were full tours right you know they had like an 86 uh, 13 shows around the country themed as the great American bash. But, you know, one of those shows comes out as, uh, as the great American bash VHS tape. Now, was that a compilation or was it one of the, I'm not, I can't remember. Or was it one for, of for which year again? 86. 86 is a compilation. Okay. And that's what this is. Okay. So the major shows were, uh, Greensboro, um, Atlanta, so basically all of the big hotspots in the Crockett territory. Uh, but just, just to go back a moment, they actually ran the tour starting in 86, but all the way up to 89, even had a tour. Uh, 91, which we don't really think about in any favorable light, but 91 was a tour. Um, and even 92 had a tour where they would advertise a lot of local shows as being part of the Great American Match Tour. Mm -hmm. Now, did you guys, as you were making your list of the of the best matches from the Great American Bash, did anyone have anything from 85 on your list? I did not, because I actually have not seen the 85 footage. I did not. Okay. 
I did not, but 85 is hot. I mean, if you think about it of the time, 85 is hot. They bring in the Road Warriors. They bring in Kamala. So it's it's a pretty loaded show. Yeah. 85 and 86 are definitely the best years of Jim Crockett mm-hmm. promotions for those who are looking to get into the product as a whole. Yeah, 85 uh, on the card. I mentioned Dusty and Tully. Uh, the semi-main is Flair, Nikita Koloff, uh, Magnum TA, and Kamala. Yeah, the Road Warriors taking on uh, Crusher Khrushchev and Ivan Koloff, the Russian team. So there's big stars, especially from that era. The Minnesota Wrecking Crew taking on Buzz Sawyer and Dick Slater. So, yeah, a, a star-studded show, no doubt about it. But 86 was the first one where – now, Kyle, full disclosure, Kyle sent Justin and I a list of – his top 10 matches right off the bat. And then as I started kind of combing through the results and rewatching stuff, it largely lined up with what Kyle had sent me. I think I only added one match uh, to the list that he had sent. I'm a, real bully, I'm a real bully and an authoritarian. Guy. I just, I, I just <laughs> like, like to this say, is what we're going to do. Here's what I like. Doing. And God darn it, everyone would agree with me. <laughs> You're going to like it too. Yeah. yeah. But usually uh, Kyle knows what he's talking about. I call him the wrestling rain man, Graham, on the show. He, he is very, he's got a great uh, mind for the history of the business. And so when he said, watch this July 5th match from 1986 between Ricky Morton and Ric Flair cage match, I had to watch it. And my God, the heat in that match is unbelievable. Just a, a great match. Did you have that one on your list, Graham? Actually, for sake of just grabbing a handful of matches i didn't consider the tours because they're basically running the same match i mean not the same match but you would see the same match on the tour you know a dozen times um so it all depends on you know whether you saw it from the home video or whether you saw it from whatever footage they showed on television at the time because that was a big deal they would take long segments from the bash tour matches and put it on worldwide or put it on the Saturday night show or, you know, so I'm going to be that guy. I picked from the pay-per-views. Okay. Primarily. Primarily. Did that match make the commercially released date? This Flair Morton match? No, no. Okay. I don't think I saw that one until maybe one of the Flair DVDs. Yeah. Or retirement. Yeah. Yes, I think it was the Ric Flair and Horseman DVD, Ryan. We talked Correct. about this. Okay. Yep. That's how I watched it. Yeah, yeah Flair I, comes in on the helicopter. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had never seen it before that DVD either. They actually released, I believe, this full show on the network as one of the hidden gems. It's no longer there. Yeah. Um, the reason I wanted to highlight this match specifically, I think when you talk about Ric Flair as a heel, there's just a lot of images that conjure up, like, like begging off you know, dirtiest player in the game type stuff. But what I love about him working with Morton is we get to see Ric Flair as a bully, which you do not see him working as very often. Like he's on offense. He's the aggressor. They had run obviously the big angle, um, you know, with Morton, uh, you know, rubbing his nose on the ground, which is tremendous leading up to this. But Flair is a bully heel. Normally it's like, you know, him chop and Luger, him chop and beg it off. No, no, no. And he has to cheat to get the advantage. This was a totally different style of work than you usually got uh from rick flair and i think that made it novel and certainly worth the watch for anyone who's never seen it yeah very good point very good point and and flair is not thought of as the biggest guy in the world but in this case you're right he's working against a guy who's smaller than him yeah and that's what makes it work you're right yeah. it's because yeah. the size difference morton's a little guy and i mean nobody plays the baby face in peril quite like rick uh, one Moore. of the one of the best selling points about that 86 tour is the fact that they, and this is how they marketed it, 
Rick Flair is going to have 12, 13 different opponents during this tour. Road Warrior, Hawk, Road Warrior, Animal, Ricky Morton, Dusty Rhodes, Ron Garvin. Is he going to survive? That's right. He's yeah. going to come out of this as the champion. Spoiler, he does not. No, he and, and that was also that complete show where he loses the title to Dusty in the cage. That was the other hidden gem that they added on the network. Again, mm-hmm. not up yet, but we have been promised everything since some, uh, by SummerSlam. So. I, I loved one of those hidden gym uh, bash 86 tours because you can see Dustin Rhodes driving the guys out to the ring on the golf cart. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. I didn't notice yeah, that. He, specifically, he's driving uh, Ron Garvin and Wahoo McDaniel. And he's got to be 18. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, worth watching for sure. But yeah, it was on Ric Flair and the Four Horsemen, that DVD set that came out. Now... Fast forward to 87. Uh, the first War Games match takes place in Atlanta. I watched this one. I've seen it before, but not in quite some time. I rewatched it last night. I had to watch it off of Daily Motion. Come on, Peacock. First <laughs> War Games match. I'm watching on Daily Motion and I'm like screen casting it to my Roku. And it's so pixelated. But man, what an awesome match. <laughs> it is an awesome match. I need the better quality on Peacock so I can watch it as it is meant to be seen again. Uh, but, you know, you got five on five. You've got J.J. Dillon in there factoring into the finish and J.J. Dillon bleeding as well. First War Games match, guys. Talk about it. What do you like about it? Uh, Graham, start with you. Well, you really don't need anything other than a good working VCR to watch that match in full. There you go. You got the tape. I yeah, love it. I do. So I know, I, I think I think there's a, a large percentage of the fan base that just loves war games. They love the concept. Think about all, all the great matches over the years. But if you think back to 1987, it's really convoluted, right? It's really, you need a stopwatch to keep up with, okay, so you can go in in one minute and you have to wait for three minutes and you have the, your team has, it's very convoluted. Um, I think the 80s, and I, I love if you've seen the some of the 87 ads, the commercials that are, that are trying to sell this concept, and it shows all these people work, all these like mechanics or you know whatever they are trying to build this massive cage. It's really very Mad Max ish. Um, 87 is really cool for that concept. I think there were certainly better uh, bash, uh, better war games matches over the years, uh, but it's hard to beat the first one in mm-hmm. terms of impact. The VHS he held up too. Um, that artwork on the cover, I think, isn't that the one that AEW imitated when they yeah. did the uh, the blood and guts? They kind of tried to recreate that. That's that's a pretty iconic poster. I love mm-hmm. that. So yeah, it was July fourth of eighty seven in atlanta they did the second one in miami just a few weeks later almost the same lineup the difference was in the first one you had uh jj of course teaming with the rest of the horsemen it's flair arn lex and tully Uh, and they were taking on the road warriors kita koloff dusty Rhodes, and paul ellering when they run it back on july 31st in miami uh the difference is instead of jj dylan you have the war machine better known as the big boss man and you knew that why that is right yeah yeah yeah, because JJ got all sorts of effed up on the finish of the first one. Yeah, he did. Yes, he pretty did. brutal. Because they had to modify the Doomsday device yeah. because of the uh, 
low ceiling and they modified it by just killing J.J.'s poor shoulder. <laughs> that poor guy, man, it, it just looks rough. You know, I, I am so jealous of Graham because he's actually got the, you know, the master copy of H. I just have a dubbed version of it way back when. And I remember watching the first War Games for the first time and thinking something was wrong with my TV because the crowd is so loud yeah. compared to the announcing. Like, I don't know if it was mixed that way or if the crowd was just that freaking insane in the Omni that night. I mean, these people were frothing at the mouth. You talk about the history of war games, and we're obviously all used to the heels getting the advantage, right? It's just like old hat, the heels, because it makes sense from a psychology perspective. You don't, you know, it'd be weird if the baby faces had the man advantage. But in this first instance, that Omni crowd was living and dying with every entry like they were freaking out when the baby face would be down two one or three two and then just it would be this massive like relief for explosion when the baby face would even the odds up um i just think in terms of the psychology of the war games working this you know i don't know if it can be beat by uh, maybe 92 um 92 is a better overall match um than this one but in terms of just the crowd heating them living and dying with every entry um whoo Man. Imagine being in that crowd that night. Yeah. Imagine being s- sitting next to that guy, that real big, I mean, you're not supposed to say this anymore, it's big, that big, that large man with the Larry Bird jersey on. Woo. <laughs> that would have been the scene. If anyone sees it, they, they show them, they stop on it. If everyone wants to watch it, man, that, that's a wrestling fan right well, there. Well, also a little context here. Uh, in the mid 80s, Atlanta had nothing to cheer for, right? The Braves <laughs> weren't winning any games. But Dusty Rhodes was. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, you know, the Hawks, you know, they would only make it so far. And the Falcons stunk. Mm-hmm. And I think they had three hockey teams leave. <laughs> wow. Yeah. No, yeah, this this makes, I guess, wrestling crowds aren't exactly like this anymore. But it definitely gets you excited to, to have wrestling crowds back here soon. Uh, we, we just raved about the ECW one night, st- one night Stand crowd in 06 and 05 and how hot they were. I mean, you're getting crowds like that, it seems like, almost every night out in that era back then. Absolutely. Yep, you're right. You're right. Definitely stands out um, and stands the test of time. So 88, I should have mentioned, too, that they're giving these events uh, taglines. Like 88, they dub it the price for freedom. 89, we're going to get to, they call it glory days. Um, Now, 88... I noted in my research that there's a there's a really good tag team match from that year. Uh, the Midnight Express defeating the Fantastic. That one got four stars in the Observer. I didn't have time to go back and, and re-watch that, but I added it to my list to watch at some point over the weekend. I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that match. Just go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 I was going to say the match is really good because it's, one, the match is really good, but it gets talked about a lot because it does have that pay-per-view platform. Mm-hmm. If I can make another recommendation, they had a match about six weeks, two months earlier on television that went, I don't know, 30 minutes or 40 minutes, something that if you can track that one down, I think you would absolutely, I think you would prefer the earlier one. Okay. That, that, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally going to talk about that match. That match is incredible. I mean, that might be the 1988 U.S. match of the year. The match you're talking about. God bless it. Why can't I not think of what it's in Chattanooga? Yep. And, 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 um, it's uh I think in multiple parts on YouTube, you so it can be found. And it also the reason that I omitted it from the list I sent you, Ryan, is not only is that match, but I like the clash match better 
too than mm-hmm. this one, which is just a wild, out of control brawl uh, on that show. But these two always had good matches. I mean, even back when it was Dennis instead of Stan, and they were working in the various territories. I mean, the Rock and Rolls were the Midnight's most famous opponents, obviously, and for good reason. The Fantastics might have been their best opponents, though, ever through the years. I mean, they never had a bad match. So it looks like that aired, you're right, it was Chattanooga. It aired on Worldwide on May 14th. So about, yeah, about six weeks before the pay-per-view. I know that Clash match we talked about on our Clash of Champions Mm -hmm. retro show. I remember rewatching that one. It's, yeah, it's a phenomenal one too. But I don't know if I've seen, unless you've sent that to us in the past over the years, Kyle. I don't know if I've ever seen that TV match. So I'll have to add that to my list for sure. But that, I mean, that's all I had down on the list to maybe talk about from '88. Did <laughs> any of you have anything else from that year? The Maryland State Athletic Commission is a bunch of assholes. <laughs> what kind of hideous finish was that? <laughs> Explain for the listeners. But so the, yep. Luger, they did a great for, and we'll talk more about Luger the next year. They did a great job building him up as the top baby face in the early part of 88. But we know the story with Rick. Rick didn't want to put over Lex and Lex got screwed because Rick had the match with Sting at the first clash and everyone decided, okay, Sting's not ready yet. But at some point we're going to have Rick put over Sting and the sun will shine forever. The sky will always be blue. So we're just going to pull everyone else kind of has to take a back seat to that. So we've got to kind of come up with a screwy finish for Rick and Lex. And Lex does a weak blade job. And they use this lame rule from the State Athletic Commission that says there can't be blood so the ref stops the match. Mm-hmm. And, it, and <laughs> Lex needed to blade more if they were going to do that finish because it looks like a shaving cut. That, that's really, I think that's why it gets criticized so much because there is only a little bit of blood. It keeps Lex strong. Mm-hmm. Because the match ends as he's got flair in the torture rack, so the place explodes. And if you watch the video, the place does explode. Um, and it kept the feud strong because they actually did good business into the fall with the rematches. So everything worked except the blood. Yeah. <laughs> Needed a lot more blood. Plus, this is 80s Crockett. We're used to a lot more blood. I'm pretty sure we've talked about that on the show. Did that come up during our flare draft? I don't know. I I feel like we have talked about this match before in uh, that we, issue. We talked about the Wrestle War Flare Luger match because yeah. they did a screwy fat finish in that too. Where Maybe that's what it, I'm thinking of. Yeah, the horseman attack sting outside the ring. Poor Lex. <laughs> it's okay. I hear I hear they're finally gonna put the belt on him in, in on the 91 bash. Yeah, yeah. Just, <laughs> this is finally the time. Yes. Uh all right, well, let's go to 89, because 89 is one of the great pay-per-views of the era. And we've been talking about this in our group text. And this is where I'm going to really bring in Justin Joint to the conversation, because I know that this is his kind of match. Talk to us about this Ric Flair-Terry Funk match from Great American Bash 89, Justin. Plain and simple, it's a fight. Yes. I mean, all these, in the majority of the match is them just slapping each other's chests. And it freaking works. It totally works. And... Not only is the match really good, but you have an all-timer uh, brawl at the end where, you know, the high points are the the crowd just anticipating Sting coming out and then him finally rushing the ring, uh, him trying to fight off both uh, Muda and Funk. And then you have Flair just like all of a sudden appearing in the camera going after him. Uh, and then my favorite part is you think it's over, Sting and Flair in the ring. 
flare bloody, uh, green mist all over him. Uh, and then I don't know which one, but either Funk or Muda threw a chair at him and, and it looks legit. Like flair just lost his temper at that point. And he goes, you know, hurtling out of the ring to go after him and they just keep fighting. And yeah, all I can say it, it's a physical, uh, fight of a wrestling match. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Graham, your thoughts right. on this one. And that match did make my list. Um, I think a lot of folks, myself included, love everything top to bottom with Bash 89. Uh, but Flair Funk is such a contrast from Flair Steamboat, which is what we had for six months prior. Uh, this is just Flair. You know, is he going to retire? Funk power drives him on the table. We don't know if Flair's in and he, if, if he's going to stay in the business, if he's going to keep the title. He, it's a fight. It's a fight. And also the surprise of Gary Hart is Terry Funk's uh, new manager, Gary Hart, who's also managing Muda. So there's they, they do a phenomenal job of not only giving us payoff in the main event, but also getting us to Halloween Havoc. Yeah. I was going to put the website over, grabbing this kid. This is like the kind of stuff that people want to see. It, you know, you can see after the match, Gary Hart's first time, time managing Terry Funk in parentheses right afterwards. So you get that good frame of reference. I think... Uh, actually, first of all, let me say this. I love a match coming off just a hot angle, right? Like, I mean, the, it's an all-time angle that they do at WrestleWar 89 with Funk Pop. In Afterbirth, Cult of Cornette people, by the way. Would love to hear your take on that, the, the dreaded Afterbirth word. But um, I just, you know, there's just no angle like that that just makes you anticipate a match, I feel, today, right? Mm-hmm. That just come off like, I mean, you're just, it's freaking go time. You're kind of like rocking back and forth in your seat, waiting for this to start. Flair comes out with the ladies, rushes the ring, and it's on. I think that maybe other than the Vader match at Starcade, this is peak babyface Ric Flair. We talked about him as a bully heel earlier, but, you know, there's a little sympathy, which you don't associate with Ric Flair often, right? Um, and, you know, with the points Graham made about, is he going to be able to retire? Um, the pre-match interview, all that stuff was cut on the Turner Home Entertainment version, I think. I don't remember seeing a lot of these interviews when I went back and watched this on the uh, network. But that interview with Gordon was great beforehand. When Gordon's like, Rick, you haven't have even had a warm-up match. Do you think you're going to be okay? Mm-hmm. Like, it is just really, really good stuff. And I'm just thinking, I'm like, man, I don't know if Rick has ever been in better as a babyface than he was in this match. Um, and the crazy thing is, we all know Ric Flair's 1989. Uh, he had a better match with Terry Funk than this, believe it or not, later. That's what's insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead, Justin. Well, I was, my one little criticism of the match, and I, and I loved it, but re-watching it back, it kind of took me aback, is uh, does it seem like they they brought out the uh, pile driver kind of in the middle of the match, and it didn't really play into it all that much, considering the hype of it? Oh, I honestly don't even remember. You, you mean when Rick did it or when Funk was going when, for it? When Funk got the pile driver on Rick. I don't know. I think it was far enough along because, right, they, Flair puts his leg on the rope afterwards, right? That's how they get yeah. out of the spot. Because, yeah, because yeah, you're right. They, they sell it a little bit, and it's like, uh-oh, I think Rick's going to lose. And, it's, and, yeah, I think he gets his foot on the rope to get out of it. But they go home not long after, I think. Yeah. And it's it's not an altogether decisive victory either. Like he doesn't beat Funk. Yeah. He beats him one, two, three, but he doesn't 
overpower him dominantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, because the cradle, cradle right. finish, right? Yeah, the, the yeah. feud had to continue. Obviously, they went to Halloween Havoc and beyond. So yeah, but you know that post match brawl. My God, it makes you want to see the tag match. What Justin brings up the crowd wanting to see Sting out there to make the save. I love that and miss that. You know, I know I say this, I miss this in today's wrestling. The crowd wanting a specific person to come out and help and then getting rewarded. That's just so awesome. Yeah. yeah you, watch the, you watch this match on Peacock and then it's over and you see that there's around 15 minutes left running time. You're like, what's going to happen? And then you stay in and you get that massive brawl, the great promo, it's good, good stuff. Ric Flair's 1989 stands apart, I think, from any other performer in the history of wrestling. I don't think that we were talking about this yesterday. I don't think any wrestler has ever had an 89-like year uh, that compares to Ric Flair from that year because you have him doing, you know, early in the year with Steamboat. He's a heel. He pivots. He becomes a babyface. He works, you know, the brawling style with Terry Funk. And he had the the more technical matches with with Ricky Steamboat. I put this out on Twitter yesterday and I, I had one person say yeah i kind of agree but what about okada in 2016 and my response was i love okada i love those matches he had in 2016 but i don't really feel like people are going to be waxing poetic about those matches in the same way in 30 years because you know to kyle's point how badly you wanted to see these matches and in the, the way that they built them up with that awesome angle with the pile driver and the table with terry funk that I just I don't know what you think about that, Graham. But I don't see any wrestler in the history of the business that's ever had a year that compares to Ric Flair's 1989. It's just unbelievable. Well, they're both all-time classic feuds. Yeah. And when when I say feud, I don't just mean matches. I mean the storytelling mm-hmm. between the matches. I mean the promos mm-hmm. between the matches. Uh, to have something that you could do on television every single week. Maybe it's only a one-minute promo, but do something on television every single week to build up to a blow-off in you know a month's time, two months' time, whatever. And that's I love '89 in, in WCW because of all the fresh talents that's coming in, but also these headlining matches and these headlining feuds. Yeah, yeah, certainly the storytelling sets it apart. I think from. Yeah, Okada had tons of really good five-star matches in, in 2016. Great ring work. But I just think from the, the total picture to seeing two sides of the Ric Flair character to that ongoing storytelling week after week that it's just it stands apart. And it stands the test of time, really. You watch a match like this, and it makes you want to relive everything in between until you get to the Havoc match, too. Can, so. I, can I point out one more thing about this card? Yeah. I, I'm just, you know... This is for Kyle's heart when it comes to kind of uh, bashing the current product. You look at the the mid card uh, of this match, and you have a. In part of this is looking at Dave Meltzer's star ratings, which is not the be all end all of if a wrestling match is good. But you have the Steiners versus Kevin Sullivan and Mike Rotundo, three stars, followed by Sting versus Great Muda, uh, three and three quarters, I believe, and then following that. Luger Steamboat four and a quarter. Now, what I want to point out is the first match I noted four minutes, 22 seconds. The next one, eight minutes, 40 seconds. And finally, 10 minutes and 26 seconds. Stuff didn't overstay its welcome back then. I mean, because <laughs> people paid to see the main event back then. It wasn't like I am paying for three and a half hours of that unique brand of entertainment that only the world wrestling federation can supply. It's, you know, that they wanted to get to the main event. And so that's why 
undercard matches never overstayed their welcome. It was very rare that anything on an undercard back then would go more than 15 minutes. But also it speaks to the time. Like today, we expect undercard matches to go, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. But you don't need that to have a memorable match. No. You know, you being, you holding a headlock for five minutes or, you know, doing something just to stretch out the, the time in the match doesn't make it more memorable. It just makes it longer. And these these shorter matches, these are the ones that we're talking about 30 years later. Yeah. I mean, to that point, I brought this up on the show before. When people talk about the Okada Omega series, I've always said my favorite match of that series is the G1 match they had, which is way, way shorter, you know, than the Wrestle Kingdom matches, for example. But it's a sprint. And I like that. I like the shorter matches. War games. You just talked about the first war games. You guys brought up the 92 uh, war games match. Those matches are all about 25 minutes, uh, a little bit less. And it, when they do war games in NXT, they're 45 minutes long. You know, you don't have to have a 45 minute long war games match for it to be a great match. None of, none of the all time classic ones were that long. And they're spectacles too, right? Because at the end of the match, everyone has to be basically dead. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the other thing too that, um, not to go back a little bit, but with that 87 war games match is. There's so much happening in the ring all at the same time versus the way WWE lays out matches when they're multi-person matches like this. Is it like two guys are doing something and everyone else is just like laying there watching them and then two other guys get up and they do something and everyone else watches them. Sometimes there's a few things going on, but not like what you see in 87. <laughs> it's, it's a whole different product. It, it's like uh, real life chaos, whereas today there's a lot of people playing dead. Yeah, like that's not how people really fight. Yeah. <laughs> you watch yeah. the matches today. Imagine you watch 87, just, it seems like a real fight. Yeah, imagine just laying around in a war games. Well, why would you do something like that? Uh, because just, it's not time for my spot. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, in the interest of time, um, I don't know how much everyone wants. Justin referenced it. I'll just throw it. There's one other match from this show that made my list, and certainly Bash 89, I think, is deserving of multiple matches on a list like this. I mean, it's a, you know, a God-tier pay-per-view in my opinion, the Luger steamboat match um, is so awesome. And we've talked about it before. I believe when we went, did this for Halloween havoc guys, 1989 Lex Luger. If you have like a concept of Lex Luger, you need to put it to the side and watch 1989. Lex, Cause this man was the God of the smart mark community. Jim Ross acknowledges it on commentary. He's like, some people actually still cheer this guy. And I don't understand why. But yeah, I mean, the smart Mark crowd loved 89 Lex. I love 89 Lex. I love this match. I see Graham shaking his head, and that makes me feel very good. Well, I've, had a, I've, I've had a long-standing theory when it comes to Lex, and I'm right there with you. I love Lex in 89. The longer his hair is, the better he, the better he does whatever he, he, it is that he needs to do. This sounds like something I love that theory. Say. Yeah, I love that theory. Short I don't, hair I don't, Lex. Short hair legs, especially like 93 legs, like uh, Lex Express legs. No, no, because all the power comes from the hair. He And he just, he didn't sweat like he did back in those days. <laughs> yeah. The longer his career got. <laughs> you know, what was fascinating about, I had never thought of that, but you now I'm not going to be able to unsee it now. I just, I'm like, I'm like, I've got the match in my head and I'm just like, it's Luger's hair is like the only thing I'm seeing. But what's fascinating about this match with Steamboat in particular is Lex is like feeding Steamboat. Like you don't like, it, it seems so odd. Like you don't see Luger do that because he worked a lot as a baby face, but you know, he takes the chop, gets right back up, takes the chop, gets 
you know, he's back down. You didn't see Lex could move man in 89. And I've, I'll say it again. I think he should have got the title uh, as a heel at the end of the year. Right. I, I think the, instead of rush the sting thing or just be hard headed about it, I, I really do. And I think then you would have had two baby faces opposing him, Fl- flair and sting 1990 would have been a lot better. Yeah. No argument. Yeah. No argument. The the more I watched stuff of that era, I, I fully believe, you know, that Russell War 90 where they had, they had to turn him babyface because of Sting being out. Oh, man, he was white hot as a heel, you know, destroying Sting, destroying Flair. You know, I'm the guy. I'm the U.S. champion. I'm the number one contender. Nobody can take this from me. And now I'm going to take the world title, too. And no one could stop him. Until he turned babyface, and then everyone could stop him. Yeah, I, and the, that really sucked because the sting knee injury obviously affected him. I mean, he goes because I believe the plan was Sting wins it at WrestleWar, and L- him and Luger were going to then work on top the rest mm-hmm. of the year because Luger had pinned him in that goofy gauntlet thing they did at Starcade. That makes sense. Yeah, and, and that would have been great. I mean, God, that sting knee injury. I, has there ever been a more catastrophic injury to a promotion than that? But but the blow off. I know we're here talking about the original yeah. bash. The blow mm-hmm. off at the bash with him coming back and winning the world title. That's that's like what we remember of 1990 WCW. Mm-hmm. Like for whatever it was intended to be, mm-hmm. that pinnacle moment in Baltimore is such a big moment. It's such a big deal. It's such a you know a what the rest of the year surrounds. I guess I just framed it like that because, you know, I joked earlier when Sting becomes world champion, the sun would shine forever and the sky would always be blue in their minds. And that didn't happen. <laughs> like business didn't go up at all when it happened. And it just, it feels like had Sting won the title as planned may, in the early part of the year, they would have been able to keep Luger heel and things would have been more logical. And I think maybe better. Let's move ahead to 1990. Yeah. Cause I think there's a go. tag team match that, yes. uh, is going to be mentioned. Uh, 1990 dubbed the New Revolution. And uh, certainly not new because you've got the Southern Boys here with the Confederate flags taking on the Midnight Express. Kyle, you're a huge fan of this match. Yeah, Midnights are my favorite team ever. Yeah. This is my favorite match of theirs. And I'll say it's either this or Steamboat and Dustin versus the Enforcers at Clash 17. That's my favorite WCW tag of the decade. Those are high words of praise from Kyle Ross. So full disclosure, this match also made my list. Uh, and the the Clash match, I, I should let you all know, I'm a half an hour from Savannah. So I pass the Savannah Civic Center on a, on a regular basis. And I always think that's where Sting pulled in in the ambulance. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And he went to the wrong door. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I love that. That's similar to um, or an hour north of Cedar Rapids where they had the Clash of Champions where Hogan got attacked and they took him to the hospital. And whenever I go by that hospital on the interstate, I always think of that 94 Clash with Hogan going to the hospital. St. Luke's, I think it is. Or it was at the time. Now, do you always refer to it as a local medical facility or do you actually (laughs) call it a hospital? I always say there's that local medical facility to my wife. Hogan once resided there for a little while. (laughs) No, but no, yeah, this is a it's an awesome match. For sure, 1990. I went back and watched this. You know, again, like the Midnight Express is not a tag team I was very familiar with growing up. And a lot of what I've watched at the Midnight Express has been Kyle's recommendations. 
And uh, this was one that he was speaking glowingly about. And it definitely, definitely lived up to the hype. You know, people should listen to Cornette's review of this match. You know, I know Jim Cornette's very divisive. I certainly wildly disagree with him sometimes. Other times I completely am on board. But he is in his elements uh, on his podcast reviewing this match. Like, it's a really good 45-minute listen, especially if you know the match well. You don't have to watch along with him. Him just breaking down every spot, why it worked, why maybe it could have gone better. It's tremendous, tremendous stuff. And, and also something to consider, the Southern boys were not established. Yes. The Midnight Express were the U.S. Tag Team Champions. So, like, they're the, the old hat. And this is not supposed to be that competitive of a match, but it ends up being a star-making match. It's funny you bring that up because Cornette spends the first part of the podcast talking about what you're saying. No one really knew the Southern boys or the crowd. Is the crowd even going to be behind them? And he's like, I don't really care what the office says. We're going to spend the first five minutes getting these guys over and the crowd into them. And it's like that, like, it's just really good to listen to like how he, his thought process on it. Yeah. Nice. I'm, I, yeah, you sent that to us. I am going to check that out for sure. Um, 91, we can <laughs> skip. <laughs> Kyle, you mentioned to us the other day that our, you might mention this off air that you had went back and you had never seen 91. And uh, you put it on and it is just as bad as the reputation <laughs> preceded it. Yeah, so I had never watched it before because of the reputation. I was like, well, why would I, you know, in the tape trading is, I'm like, why would I pay money for something that's regarded as so hideous? I'm not going to watch that. And then the network came out and I never thought to put it on. And, you know, I'm doing, we're 91 now, me and Liam reviewing that. And we're talking about Flair jumping ship from WCWWF. And I'm a lot of great American bash. I'm like, I've never watched a show. I'm going to put it on. And good Lord, it might actually be worse than people say. I've just <laughs> never seen a more depressing show. Like maybe I'm looking for it, but every performer that comes out just has this look on their face. Like the show sucks. Don't want to be here. And as Graham, uh, you know, joked earlier, Nope. Lex Luger does not win the title from Ric Flair at the show because Ric Flair doesn't bother to show up. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I certainly didn't have anything from 91 on my list. I don't know if, Graham, if you had anything else from 90 on your list. I, I should have given you that opportunity. Or if by no, any chance you have something from 91. Nothing nothing else from 90. Um, I'm sure you guys know, but I did a book on the Baltimore Arena several years ago. And and all these major shows are just, you know, this this is the home of the Great American Bash for so many years. But 91, it is rough. But if you look at 91 uh, from beginning to end, the whole year is bad. Like the only thing that makes the bash stand out so much is the absence of Ric Flair. And there's not a, a main event to save it, save the show. So uh, Wrestle War 91, War Games, I'll give you that. Uh, Super Brawl 1, you know, the most memorable thing, Steiners against Sting and Luger. I'll give you that. That's like a match of the year kind of match. And then you get here, and the one guy who typically saves the pay-per-view got fired. <laughs> and now you've got you've got all these like new characters like Johnny B. Bad, you've got Oz, you've got all these guys. No one is over. And then the guys who are established, you've got the Rock and Roll Express against each other. So you took the hottest tag team and you split them up. So you killed your hottest tag team. But then the other guys like Barry Windham, who is a heel. Lex Luger, who is a babyface, 
and then you switch them after the match. So now who's your who's your top baby face? Because your top baby face is now your world champion heel. So there's really nothing, nothing at all. And and in interviewing for the book and interviewing so many fans who were there that, that night, some of them walked in the building that night not knowing Flair had been fired. Oh, because it happened so i mean it was like a week 10 days whatever so if you missed one weekend of television and you walk in having tickets for the show and you sit down and there's a piece of paper there saying that rick flair will not appear blah 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 and like what what what's the main event hmm. yeah because i think it was just with one week they ran a crawler on the final week of television or something it would i mean yeah it was a different time you didn't have the internet to just push the scoops out uh back in 91 you know what folly on that show. It's not just Flair leaving. They have the scaffold match, which is so dangerous. Like the scaffold is so thin. And the four guys beforehand were like, I don't feel comfortable doing this. And I'm not taking a bump. So they changed the rules the day of to capture the flag. Like it's gym class. <laughs> no one does anything. It's just four guys holding on for dear life, hoping not to fall off this thing. And freaking PN News grabs a flag to win uh and that's fun the most memorable thing about that match is it's stone cold steve austin's pay-per-view debut yes and he and he's the first guy who has that boo-boo face on when i saw <laughs> when he's like i i wish i would be anywhere buddy i i wish i would make my pay-per-view debut at a different time and then the main event is not luger windham it's this mixed tag it was rick steiner and missy you guys are gonna love this ryan just if you know this it's rick steiner and missy hyatt against Arn Anderson and Paul Lee. They've been hyping it for a while. Well, the Maryland State Athletic Commission rears its head again, <laughs> and you can't have a match with a woman and a man. So they take Missy Hyatt out before the match. I think the hard line, yes, it is the hardliners, capture her. They And Dick Slater and Dick Murdoch. A fan tries saving Missy from their clutches, and do you remember this, Graham? No, I can't remember, no, no. I can't remember okay. because the whole the whole scenario is is just ridiculous, and it's getting more ridiculous. Yeah. I can't remember if it's Murdoch or Slater. One of them just takes a wild swing at the fan and drops <laughs> Missy while oh. doing it. So they have to. So they've been hyping this. It turns into a handicap match: Rick Steiner versus Arn Anderson and Paul Lee in a steel cage, and Rick Steiner pins Paul Lee. And it's very, very bad. So I'm trying to remember what the original match was because obviously Scott is out hurt. Yes. And I think oh Barry, Arn and Barry against the Steiners. And maybe maybe Missy and uh, but, Paul, but Lee. Paul Lee and Missy were definitely supposed to be I mean, because they had been building that on TV for right. a long time. But yeah, apparently they just never conferred with the state athletic commission. Oh yeah, we're gonna have a woman wrestle man and yeah, like day of they're like, No, you're not. So, so if, if we got the show as it was intended, we get we get Luger and Flair in a cage, but we also get the Steiners against Arn Anderson and Barry Windham with Paulie and Missy also involved. Does that save? How much does that save the show? Because obviously it saves the show a little bit. Well, yeah, because I think the whole reason this show is terrible is just because you know it, it was unprecedented losing a main event like that and having these match changes. You're right. I mean, that's what it is. I, I mean. The match quality is not good, top to bottom, but yeah, it would be much better. It'd be, I mean, ninety-one WCW was kind of running on fumes, like you'd mentioned earlier, until they went to the Dangerous Alliance and 
the end. But yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be what it's known as now. I think it's just the the behind the scenes folly that gives that show its much deserved reputation. Yeah. Justin couldn't handle any more talk about it. 91 Great American Bash. He just got up out of his chair and left. He's gone. <laughs> Not the first. <laughs> yeah. I think he had to put his kid down for his nap. But uh, let's let's move ahead to 92. Now, this one, we talked, I believe we talked about the match that I think is going to come up about three years ago because we did a show looking back at the career of Vader uh, when he passed. I think it was in June of 2018. And that check our archives if you didn't hear it. That one turned out really good. I like that pod a lot. Um, so I'm guessing Sting and Vader is probably on everyone's list. Yes, it is. It is. And I know we've been talking about these all, all day. Uh, I have that poster, Bash 92 poster, signed by, you know, as many guys haven't met Liger yet. But as many guys who are still living as, as possible to sign that one, that is a favorite of mine. It's such a strange show for the time <laughs> period, uh, but it's absolutely one of my nostalgic favorites. Yeah, this was an easy pick. I mean, this would be in the tippy top among all the matches we're going to talk about today. Such a great rivalry mm-hmm. that these two had um, that spanned multiple years. It's hard to pick a favorite pay-per-view match of theirs between this, Starcade, and then Super Brawl the next year. Um, a heel being put over this strong was very rare in this era. Now we see it all the time, right? Like, I mean, every WWE show, my God, the heel just decimates the baby face. But a heel winning the title cl- relatively clean. I mean, it was pretty, I mean, Sting like knocks himself out when he misses the Stinger splash on the post. But I mean, that was pretty clean. Yeah. Uh, heel win back for 1992. So that was a big deal. Um, it's funny when Graham Rich, this being an odd show, man did like Watts just kill the energy of this promotion when he took over. It just, it was so dim. And then they do that silly tag tournament on it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. This is the semi main. Yeah. I mean, yeah. J- just watch this match. I wouldn't watch um, the rest of that show to be honest with you. It's just so dark. Yeah. I did, like- I did. I did see in some of the reviews of this match, people were like, Oh, it kind of deflates the crowd. Cause the heel went over and everything, but I mean, that doesn't bother me watching oh, it right if, now. If you don't like heels going over, just go home right now. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Watch the World Wrestling Federation today. No, I I love that uh, I picked this up at the store. I was wondering the what you're day. doing. The vintage Vader figure with, oh. the, with the helmet, you know, yeah. with the steam and everything. Gotta love that era. Vader, just good, good stuff. But yeah, this is, this is a great one. This was when I started making my list. Or if, if I was going to make a list from scratch that didn't include Kyle's recommendations, this would have been right up there. One of the first ones I thought of. This and and Funk and Flair, it's, it's a good one. So, yeah, Sting and uh, Sting and Vader is one of the great feuds from that era, for sure. Um, now, they didn't have a great American Bash in 93 or 94. Is there any background behind why they dropped it? Does anybody know? I think it's basically Eric Bischoff taking over and just clean slate. You know, that's that's the dusty era that's, you know, obviously last year was Bill Watts. Uh, we're going to do our own thing. And one thing he was big on is cost cutting. Mm. So no more tours, obviously, or no, you know, no more big promoted tours, uh, a lot more television and a lot fewer house shows. Yeah, I, w- I was thinking the same that, you know, it, it kind of coincides with Bischoff's rise to power. Also, Ryan, if you remember, we just did that Wrestle War 92 Mm-hmm. Uh, pod, and remember we were talking about how many 
shows they had lined up in such a short span. They had Wrestle War. They did the bash, obviously, that year. They had a clash. And then they did Beach Blast. the first, yeah. And it was, like, so tight. I think it was a case where it's like, well, we've got to get rid of something. And, you know, under Eric, um, Beach Blast slash, you know, Bash the Beach became a bigger deal than the mm-hmm. Great American Bash. That was kind of his baby. And so, yeah, I think that's why they cut it. And then they they bring it back when they, you know, were kind of doing pay-per-views every month because that was a pretty logical thing to do. They had like a campus showdown pay-per-view or something that they were planning, I think, for early in the fall that they dropped to in that era. In 92, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they were yeah, they were looking to too much, yeah. Yeah, so, so we get to 95. And the one on the list here, I really like this match, especially involving Angelo Poffo, Ric Flair, Randy Savage, um, maybe not the finish that you would be expecting going in. Uh, you know, Randy is out to avenge his father and the attack, but uh, on no, Father's Day, on Father's Day, but in fact, Rick gets the victory in this match. And I mean, you're talking about old rivals going back to their their WWF history, of course, just a few years earlier. It's kind of crazy looking now. Maybe it's just because we're older. But it seemed like at the time that their WWF feud had been like a long time ago. <laughs> it's like only three years. You know? Changing promotions does wonders. People have forgotten this because we just had one big national promotion for so long. Yeah. When, yeah, when it's, it happens in a different promotion, it's like a whole new world, man. Yeah. It's like never happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you look at this match and you think about how, you know, Vince thought, randy's wrestling was behind him and wanted to announce full-time and you know he's on a mission to show that he can still work and he's out there with rick flair who at this point is 46 years old and still doing top level stuff great great match I actually right. if i was going to look at the whole show i didn't pick anything from 95 but if i was going to look at the whole show i'd probably go with pillman and alex wright mm-hmm. even though like i'm a long-term pillman guy even though they always beat him they always beat him. Anytime mm-hmm. he gets some push, like this is going to be the moment, they beat him. Yeah. It, it was, it, that was when he first started showing the heel tendencies that he would, when he obviously turned horse for that match. Like he was like, um, and he did it with like the Johnny B. Bad match too later in the year. Pillman had kind of a nice little run. That, that is a fun match, him and Alex Wright. He's, he's like a salty baby, baby face. Yeah. Yeah. He's just like, it, it's cool. And, and you know, it was funny too because the diehards did not like Alex Wright's baby face push at all. Das, but, but also, that's mm-hmm. that's Pillman's backyard. Yeah, because one more reason for the crowd to to boo Alex Wright and cheer him. Yes, this was in Dayton. Yeah, down, just down uh, seventy one there for me, and um, you know, or, or as they call it in King of the Ring ninety three, the Heartland of America. We yes. never refer to it as Dayton, <laughs> Ohio. It is only the Heartland of America. <laughs> We're not going to mention the city. It's just this. Um, you know, Ryan, you kind of touched on this a little bit with the Savage Flair match. Um, and comparing it to Mania 8. Uh, it's not as good as Mania 8. Sorry, PWO message board. Sometimes they go a little strong over hyping things, but that's okay. We all like have our favorites. Um, this is kind of similar to Mania 8, just with Angelo Poffo in place of Elizabeth, right? Mm-hmm. It's Savage avenging someone in the family. It, and it, the other difference is Ric Flair wins here. Um, this probably is the only good thing from the first six months of 95 WCW, which is a wretched wretched promotion <laughs> i mean we talked about 91 earlier the first six months of 95 give 91 a run for its money Woo! it is just the hogan loving baby and if you don't like hulk hogan do not watch the first six months of 1995 <laughs> wcw seconded yeah 
Justin, we're done talking about the uh, the 91 bash, so you are safe to return here. <laughs> Phew. I made a joke on the air that Justin has had it with his discussion of 91. <laughs> He's left, got up out of his chair, and he left. Um, Justin, anything from 95 bash that you wanted to discuss? Did you have Flair Savage down? Yeah, I, I, and I'm assuming you guys already talked about uh, the Renegade versus Arn Anderson <laughs> being on your list. <laughs> yeah, as I mentioned, the first six months of 1995 oh. were trash. The intro of that show has the Renegade in it, and something like the Renegade's on fire. Really, <laughs> really. <laughs> Graham, correct me if I'm wrong. Was he not hyped for his debut as the ultimate surprise? Yeah, and that's okay. what I bought uncensored. <laughs> I was I was 13 years old going, wow, they're bringing Warrior. Cool. And then they did not. <laughs> the ultimate surprise. I mean, it, there had to be a lawsuit, right? <laughs> if Probably. not, has the statute of limitations gone by? Because I might just bring one to the hell of it now well, that we're talking about. Well, what he's about. not telling you is Graham spent the next about 18 months sending letters to Atlanta looking for a refund of that pay-per-view. Yeah. I remember being on the school bus the next day talking to another kid who wore the pay-per-view. And I'm talking, telling him, I don't think that was Warrior. <laughs> and the kid's going, I, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. That was him. There, there is a second Ultimate Warrior after all. Yeah. <laughs> um let's let's move forward to 96 all right because 96 is a damn good show I, I mentioned that we just did the top rope nation classics on ecw one night stand uh 2006 number two the show that we almost did was great american bash 96 behind the scenes we were kind of hoping that was going to win the poll it did not we go with okay what the, we love you voters. we we go to we go with what the patrons choose patrons voted for ecw one night stand but in the future we will probably cover this show and on it you get the WCW debut of Rey Mysterio taking on Dean Malenko for the Cruiserweight Championship. I mean, just a you know a showcase showing that the business is changing. This is how WCW was setting themselves apart from the WWF. You know, as everybody knows, when they brought in the Cruiserweights, and this is a phenomenal match. You know, you might think that Mysterio coming in with some hype, they want to put the title on him. They don't. He loses the match. Uh, but it is a, a spectacular one. So this is on my list. Anyone else have this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Love this match. <laughs> I, I assume around the horn, probably. Yeah. I really ha- no. I did not have this match, but I do have another match from the show, and it was a coin toss. John Tenta, uh, Big Bubba Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I. You know, I'll just say. You know, I think the most famous thing about this match. I'm interested to know. I because I, I have two matches from the show, so I'm a, a, maybe guessing that. Graham and I are in agreement on the yeah. second one. There's a lot you could pick. This is, is you know, 89 and 96 are just like the two standouts from the entire run of the bash pay-per-view wise. I mean, just 89 um, is the best of that era. And this is one of the best Bischoff era shows forever. You get the debut of the NWO, of course. But I think the interesting thing behind goes on behind the scenes with Dean and Ray here. So you guys have probably heard this story, but it bears repeating for anyone who may not have heard it. Ray shows up in the locker room. This is his debut. And people in the locker room laughed at him. They're like, you're putting this person on pay-per-view. He's so small. And nobody was laughing after the match. They were all like, you know, trying to run in line, be the first to kiss his ass when he came Mm. back. Vintage WCW. So that's like a fascinating thing that like people are like, who? You're putting this child on pay-per-view? And, you know, he he went up there and killed it. And like the first couple high spots – 
key hits in this match. The announcers have like no idea what they've just seen. Look, God, thank God Mike today was <laughs> yeah, out, there out there because yeah. Tony and Dusty, who Dusty kills me this whole pay per view. I mean, they would have been lost without today. But um, just a great match and a great feud. You mentioned Ray does not win his debut. He does eventually win the cruiserweight title. Uh, I think about a month. I think they want he wins it the night after Bash at the Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my favorite match of theirs is actually the one at Havoc. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's a great five match series in '96 that gets both guys over. Dean Malenko in 1996 got organically over as a babyface by the end of the year. Give me 96 WCW crowds, not these people, <laughs> you know, who want to wear let me in shorts. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is uh, yeah, at this point, uh, Hurricane Rana had not made the lexicon of Tony Schiavone. Everything's a Frankensteiner in this match. But uh, yeah, today is out there to help kind of paint the story and does a good job. And yeah, it's it's phenomenal. And they gave him a lot of time too. the match is about 18 minutes long. I think it's like the second longest yeah, the second longest match on the show, only behind Flair and Arn against uh, the NFLers, Kevin Green and Steve McMichael. So, yeah, well, and you know, to, we should hit on that real quick because we mentioned mid card matches not going long, not overstaying their welcome back in the day. What was so unique, and obviously we all know this, and I think most people listening know this, um, you know, this era of WCW, the main eventers couldn't go very long. But yeah. you had the, the cool thing was you had the great workers underneath, and they did, and that dynamic worked really well actually just giving the undercard guys more time and then you know people were happy with what they got out of the main events sometimes graham did you have a falls a certain falls count anywhere match from this show on your list you know i did yes (laughs) um so i i remember um i really wanted to order this pay-per-view uh my family goes up and we were in we were in panama city florida at the time we drive up to north carolina because we're gonna stay in a little cabin a little log cabin for a week you know what little log cabins don't have they don't have cable and they don't have pay-per-view but because we're in north carolina the night of the pay-per-view the pay-per-view is over the local news because kevin green was a carolina panther the local news had highlights from the match wow wow so i was already sucked in from the build and then I remember watching, oh, my God, it's big enough that it made the local news here. Oh, my gosh. And then um, watching Nitro, I think, the next night or, you know, the next week, whatever it was, everyone's talking about the Falls Count Anywhere match. Everyone's talking about Rey Mysterio, Dean Malenko. Everyone's talking about the, end of the not NWA, but the Outsiders. There were so many huge talking points coming out of this show. And I remember this was so rare at the time. They made an ad, a commercial, that you could order the VHS for only $20. I did that immediately. Just because if you look at the first six months of 96 and WCW, it's almost like a before and after. So if you ever talk about WCW, there's WCW before Hulk Hogan and there's WCW after Hulk Hogan. In 1996, there's WCW before the Great American Bash, and there's a night WCW after the Great American Bash. So this show gets the ball rolling for everything that comes after the cruiserweights, the NWO, um, you know, the Benoit Sullivan, the the ECW type violence that was starting to come in. Everything starts on that night. Even the reformation of the Horsemen. So many huge things coming out of it. Yeah. The, the, I- I'm going to say it, full disclosure, 
I love Ric Flair and Arn Anderson versus Kevin Green and Mongo on this show. Like, I mean, I like with the follow-up angle with Mongo being, I mean, you're a Chicago Bear guy. You had to love number 76. Oh, man, uh, I love joining the horseman. No wrestling, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, Kevin Green was a real natural. I know other people have said it before. There's a spot early in that match where, you know, obviously Rick and Arn are two of the more decorated wrestlers, so they're going to out-wrestle him. But then Green reverts to his football and, like, starts doing these shoulder tackles on him. And, like, the crowd is so into it. That is good stuff, man. Mm-hmm. That is really, really good stuff. And, you know, with the false count anywhere, it's such a novel brawl at the time. Like, you didn't, like, if you weren't watching ECW, you did not see stuff like that, really, in 1996. You know, them brawling into the crowd, into the bathroom. Dusty Rhodes saying, there's a woman in the men's room. I mean, that will <laughs> never not be funny. Um but they yeah, go, was, they're going to get that some relief, baby. Yeah, yes, he, yes. <laughs> he just could not stop making toilet jokes. Yes. Um, yeah, that is such a great line. Um, and Benoit wins, actually. My God, Chris Benoit won a WCW paper. I mean, no, but that, that's certainly, you know, not something that anyone's going to rejoice about now. But at the against, time, yeah. Against the guy who had been feuding with Hulk Hogan for the longest time. That was that was a big shock to me, too. He got owned. And that really, if if I wasn't already a huge Benoit fan, that was the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that angle afterwards, if anyone's unclear and is watching this, it wasn't watching the time when Arn comes out. And people are like unclear if Arn's going to help the fellow horsemen. They were doing this weird horseman storyline where they were falling apart. And then they just kind of jumped it when, you know, the, the promotion really got going. So, yeah. And the, the pop when Arn like reaffirms that he's on Benoit's side is just so awesome, man. And I mean, hunts Kevin Sullivan and Baltimore explode. Yeah. I mean, that's horseman country. So it was the perfect place to do it. So, yeah. Excellent. Good, good stuff. Yeah. 96 Bash is an all timer. Um, now, when we get to the later year, years of the Great American Bash, I mean, post-98, I have nothing on my list. I went through, I didn't have a lot of memories of watching those shows. I, I did <laughs> at the time, and uh, I think I forgot a lot of it for good reason. But uh, when I went back through those cards, I'm like, yeah, 99, and I, like nothing's going nothing's gonna to make the list here. But 97, 98, a couple of things stood out. Um, Kyle, let me just throw it to you. What do you got from 97 and 98? I have nothing from 97. Um, there's some good stuff on there, but nothing that really stood out. Like the Dallas Page, Randy Savage yeah. match is good. But again, I don't think it's my favorite of theirs. I think I like Spring Stampede better yeah. if you put a gun to my head. Um, but from 98, obviously one of the more remembered things of that era was the best of seven or eight uh, with Benoit and Booker. And that's a really good match. This is the final match Booker wins. And, what kind of stinks, um, you know, there's a lot of things that stink when you watch Benoit matches now, but um, one that's a little lower down is this was the period where WCW began getting very frustrating in that you had mid-card guys who were clearly ready to break out of the pack, these two included, and they were not rewarded. This was actually the first WCW pay-per-view I did not watch live in like over a year and a half. So my, if anyone thinks, oh my God, like you ordered all those pay-per-views, you had so much money. No, my buddy had a scrambler and we watched them all legally. But um, I think the statute of limitations is passed on that. But yeah, well, I remember this was the first that we're like, you know, guys, we're not going to get together for this one. Um, and yeah, but you know, I've watched the match many times subsequently. And yeah, Benoit and Booker, they kill it in the opener. And the rest of the pay-per-view stinks. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, ninety eight's a weird show because in the main event, you've got Bret Hart tagging with Hulk Hogan when they were doing that weird is Bret in the NWO is he not kind of thing. Like he had been involved with Benoit and Booker's uh, series where he offered Benoit like a shot a shot with the NWO. It seemed like he didn't want to take their help. Um, if you watch that main event and you watch Bret Hart come out next to Hulk Hogan, I mean, Graham, he, he grew up a big Bret Hart fan like I did and like Justin did. He looks like he wants to be anywhere but this show if you watch And, it. and also, to, to put in some context here, I mean, this is, this is what, nine months after Montreal? Yeah. And, and the go-to match upon him coming into WCW is him versus Hogan. And now they're tagging. So he's, he's already dead in the water. He's he's already like just another guy. Luckily, uh, Michael Buffer gets the introduction right on this show and does call him Bret Hart, not Bret Clark. So that was that was a win. <laughs> that, that was such a big internet thing in '98. Remember, everyone yes. would always make Bret Clark jokes after that. Yeah, but uh, yeah, Bret and Bret and Hogan against uh, Roddy Piper and Randy Savage. But yeah, I mean, to think where Brett was a year earlier, and then when you watch him in this match, you're like, geez, what are they doing? And what a wasted opportunity. But Booker and Benoit, yeah, that's a good one. I, I had written down in my notes the uh, the Savage GDP match from the year prior because I was trying to get something from 97 in there. But then, yeah, post, post 98, there's really nothing to speak of. But yeah, Savage and, and Page, they had a good feud. Um, as Kyle mentioned, probably not their best match, but you know, if you're going through the, uh, the history of the great American bash, 97 is worth a watch with Savage and DDP. I think, um, it, it, all I, the matches are very unique on 97. Like you just like have no idea what match is going to happen next. They like go Ultimo Dragon, Psychosis, Steiner's Harlem Heat. There's like a freaking women's match. I think Glacier and Mortis. You're like, my God, the, the variety of styles in this promotion. Well, yeah. you can really tell starting in 97 that the focus is on Nitro. The focus is not on the pay-per-view. Like, they will take your pay-per-view money, but they really want you to watch every Monday instead. Mm-hmm. For sure. That's a great point. Yeah, because what's the best, like, 1997 WCW pay-per-view? That's when I mean, they were on the spot. They're all fun. Uh, yeah, they, they were, like, because it was, like, a hot promotion, but, like, I'm trying to think, like, none of them, like, really stood out. Halloween Havoc, I would probably pick. Probably well, yeah, because with Eddie and Ray, yeah. yeah. But like the whole show is either it's either phenomenal matches like that or super hot feuds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, you were talking about Brett in '98 at the Great American Bash. Correct me wrong. Is that the show where somebody phoned a that called the arena and said Stu Hart had died? Oh, it might have been. I forget when that happened. I I want to. I think that was a Great American Bash show, maybe. I'm almost positive now that it happened because they like Bischoff said like you don't have to work the show because when you when you mentioned Brett I mean obviously Brett is, is not you know exchanging Christmas cards with Hulk Hogan at this point but it, when you mentioned how he looked that like kind of jogged a memory I'm like I think this might have been the show where somebody phoned the arena and to tell Brett Stu had died which was a lie obviously it was a prank call which is a just a freaking hideous thing to do. It this, was. It was a show. Yeah, I just Googled this it. Is Brett, okay, I was going to say, because it's Brett's only bash match. Yep. Okay. All right. Yeah, so that makes sense. Yeah. How about that, by hmm. the way? So that's another reason he didn't want to be there. He's Yeah, no doubt. But uh, yeah, I'm looking at an article right now. Yeah, Bischoff and Dylan offered Brett the night off. Uh, but later, Brett received confirmation his father was actually alive and well. 
but still shaken by the incident. Uh, the, the prank obviously kind of stayed with him the rest of the night. So they were booking him bad. Yeah, that on top of it. Yeah, Brett looks like he wants to be anywhere but the Great American Bash that night. Um, did you guys have any other matches on your list in, in the later part of the 90s that we should hit on before we wrap this up? Graham or Justin? No. <laughs> no. 2000. 2000, it's an interesting time frame because I was willing to give the, the New Blood and the Millionaire Club a chance. Um, I like the concept of taking all the established guys and making them the the underdog. Same. Um, but it just it it went sideways so quickly. Yeah. Is is Great American Bash 2000 the, the heel turn that not even Vince McMahon can stop? What a freaking <laughs> hideous idea that was. Remember, Eric Bischoff goes on TV and says that and just totally telegraphs that Bill Goldberg is going to turn heel because there was the rumors that Steve Austin, that's when you started reading Steve Austin, might turn heel, which was another stupid idea while we're talking about those. <laughs> um, but yeah, and Eric Bischoff goes, not even Vince McMahon can stop this heel turn. Yeah. Sure, he was really staying up all night thinking about that one, Eric. <laughs> well, hopefully we've given you guys something to go back on uh, the WWE Network if you're international or Peacock and re-watch. We always love doing these historical shows. We love bringing on guests. Had a spectacular one today with Graham Cawthon. Hopefully we can bring Graham back in the future, and it won't be five years, Graham, until I get you on the podcast again next time. Uh, tell the listeners where they can find you and if you've got anything in the works and uh, wrestling wise for the future. Uh, biggest, the easiest place would be Twitter at the history of WWE. Um, feel, feel free to tweet me, ask me questions. I mean, I know the answers, but I'll make something up. <laughs> it's the only way to do it, man. That's how we survive. No, this was a lot of fun. I re- really appreciate connecting with you here and uh, getting to talk to you. Yeah, and and if I can add one thing about the bash, you know, when you look at the beginning of it and you look at the end of it, it it begins as a unique live experience that you're not going to find anywhere else. It ends as an afterthought because we want you to watch the show from home. And you can see that progression. Um, We want you to buy a ticket. We want you to be there. We're going to have fireworks. We're going to have a concert. We're going to have you know, blow off to matches that you've been waiting for for months and months and months. And it ends as just another pay-per-view during a week in which we have, you know, 15 hours of television to fill. Yeah. Well put. Well put. Justin, Kyle, any closing thoughts from you guys? I'm ready to get started on uh, part two, two hours of the WWE version. Let's go. Yeah. Thousands <laughs> <laughs> WWE, a bash. Yeah. Oh yeah, JBL's Kyle. first title win. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yes. Uh, no man, I, I love talking old wrestling. Two shows in a row, guys. Two shows in a row. Love talking about old wrestling with you guys. Thank you so much, Graham, for coming on. It was great, and uh, you know, hopefully one day we can convince Ryan that Top Rope Nation Classic can become the main thing, and then we'll just brand when we talk about present wrestling, Top Rope Nation present. We <laughs> put can just flip it on Yeah, yeah, we can just flip it all on its head because man, it's it's just great to go down memory lane. All right. Hey, well, speaking about that, I should mention that uh, if you want to hear us talk more current wrestling, because we have been doing these classic shows the last couple of weeks, uh, Patreon, or if you have the Spotify Green Room app, Kyle and I will be on there next week talking about the latest news in pro wrestling. You can listen live on the Spotify Green Room app, follow myself and Kyle, and then we post them in podcast forms as a Top Rope Nation Extra. 
the bonus show over on Patreon every week. So if you want to hear us talking about the WWE releases, for example, that just happened yesterday, I'm sure we're going to be addressing that uh, next week and all the latest with AEW and WWE. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I assume we're doing a Dynamite post show as well. Uh, we could. Okay. We could. <laughs> it's, always, it's always fun doing the game planning live on the air. Yeah, we could. <laughs> a window into the backstage yeah. on Top Rope Nation there. Yeah, we'll be talking about that. But uh, yeah, follow the show on Twitter at Top Rope Nation. We have a Facebook pro wrestling discussion group. Join that. Search Top Rope Nation pro wrestling discussion. You can find Kyle at TRP Kyle. Justin's at Justin Joint. And I am at Ryan Drosty. We will see you guys next time. This has been episode 213 of Top Rope Nation. Enjoy your Independence Day weekend. Watch some classic wrestling. Catch you next time.